the depths of nowhere. Two guys sitting around talking about bullshit. It is Sports and Spirits with Nathan and Max. Good luck. So you've been reading a new book? Yeah. Um, I'm one of these that like to uh, go through and uh, find bargain books on different topics and subjects and uh, obviously being a sports fan. Uh, I remember when this book came out, it's probably uh, about 20 years old, but it was called Scorecasting. And it's basically, uh, it kind of goes in and, and looks at the uh, analytics of the way people view games and what people think a team ought to do in certain situations and stuff. And uh, the authors are Tobias Moskowitz and uh, John Wertheim. Uh, Sorry about that. Um, And uh, it's got some interesting stuff that it talks about in here. And that's kind of, so like chapter one is, uh, talks about whistle swallowing. And, uh, and it wants to know, you know, basically the premise is why fans in the league want officials to miss calls. And we kind of talked about this. We know we see this example in uh, the playoff games. And, uh, you know, where we don't want to see a game riddled with whistles. And it kind of talks about that, that, that the premise is they don't want the stars to be fouled out in certain like basketball right. things like that so you know and uh and it it shows that there is a slight bias when it comes to like championship games and things like that the the, the number of penalties tend to go down the more critical of the game right so and and certain plays don't get called in certain situations in a game like late in basketball games you typically don't get a charging foul those kind of things and uh, but like we had talked about in the Super Bowl where they they had the holding call that obviously would have been holding in any other game yeah but big deal because it's Super Bowl yeah and uh, but they called it even though it didn't really the camera angle they were showing didn't really to me, didn't justify calling a holding. I think their original intent was going to try to say pass interference, but the the ball was thrown so far out of bounds that it wasn't catchable. So they went back to the holding call. And but way, I mean, even the player said he was holding him. Yeah, even though he said he was holding him, and he, you know, just I think it was probably one of those deals. Look, they won. There's nothing we can do about it. You know, but. You know, what do you think of that? What do you think of like? Do you think, do you think you see a a bias in the game from that standpoint where you see? Seems like it sometimes. Yeah. But for the most part, I would, I want, I want them to call it the same no matter what. If it's a regular season game, if it's playoffs, Super Bowl, whatever. Because if that's the case, we're going to run into the same crap that we always run into with the NFL. Nobody knows what a penalty is. Right. You know, every time a penalty gets called, you're sitting here like, you know, you you can have one person on the spectrum over here saying that no, that's not a penalty, and this person saying it is, and yet they're both right. Right. 
you know, because you've seen it happen multiple times that, yeah, it's a penalty in this game, but it's not a penalty in that game. Yeah. And that's what I don't want to see. I want it to be the same every game. Yeah, the you know, especially like the NFL, you got several questionable calls. Holding's questionable. Uh, pass interference is questionable. Uh, and then, you know, the one that gets me is what's a catch now? Um, right. I can tell you what a catch is. Yeah. Des Bryant against the Packers, that's a catch. Well, you know, we've had several of those now in critical games where they can't define what a catch is or, yeah. you know, what has been defined a catch, all of a sudden they decide, well, no, that's not a catch now. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, you know, this this book, uh, you know, has probably, you know, about 20 chapters. And, you know, I, I found there were several topics in here that I think is interesting. It's definitely worth reading. Uh, they've got one, the, the second chapter is called Go For It, and it talks about should coaches go for it in more critical situations, or should they go for it like on fourth down? I mean, now it almost seems like it's worth it just to go for it. Yeah, the analytics are starting to play into the equation. And just offensive teams are – well, the game's changed to where it's all offense anyway – these teams are so good at getting down there and scoring that you know, why not? You know, yeah. especially if you're on the opposing team's uh, side of the field, you might as well. Right, and we talked. You know, we talked about. You know, the analytics say it's better productivity if you were to pass every down, but no team yeah, is willing to try that. And the reason why they kind of explain this in the chapter is that. Coaches have to feel secure in their job to make those calls. It's easier right. for them not to do those things because of job security. Because if they're wrong, people's perception is they made the wrong decision. But the analytics say they made the right decision right. even when it should, doesn't work. Well, isn't, isn't Baltimore notorious for they run off analytics no matter what the situation is? Isn't that kind of what they do? Well, there are several teams like Sirianni of the Philadelphia Eagles. Mm-hmm. He's very analytic, uh, analytics-driven. Yeah, they went um, they went forward on fourth down a lot. You know, even Mike McCarthy, he's pretty aggressive now, way more than uh, Jason Garrett was. Oh, well, hell, you know, Jason Garrett um, ain't aggressive on anything. But, you know, the, the, the person they really use, they compare, is Bill Belichick. When he was in Cleveland – because he didn't have full wasn't as aggressive as yeah, he, he was is nowhere with near the as aggressive as he was in New England. Well, maybe uh, like what you said, you know, yeah, he job, didn't have security. job security. Yeah, where now he's actually the most aggressive coach in certain situations, and it hmm. gives examples in there. Uh, but I think we are seeing the game where we're seeing more uh, situations where teams are starting to be more aggressive on certain play calls when when they. Uh, you know, just trying to win. And like you said, the league's changed so much to a passing league. Right. And defenses aren't uh, the defenses that we're used to seeing where they're just the the pure shutdown defense. We're not seeing that anymore. So I think teams are saying, you know what, I'm willing to risk it and gamble it. Or it's part of the uh, the game plan that they, you know, they, they know in this situation – we're going to go for it. And, right. it, and there is – it talks about that, too, that 
the uh, Kelly coach out of the Arkansas high school, the parochial school. That never, that never, never kicked punts. a punt. Yeah. And he says the reason why it works for them because the teams already are mentally prepared, and it talks about teams that are fourth and goal. Yeah. That go for it. They know that if they start out they have this first and goal, they got it mentally set in their mind. They're going for it on fourth down because yeah. they've got four shots at it, and the chances of them making it go up exponentially Yeah. versus if a team gets to the two-yard line – you know, and they don't have, and it's like fourth down, but they got to the two yard line. They, they're not they start anticipating playing with, them, playing with yeah. their own mind, yeah, saying, start, "Okay, yeah, their own we're gonna head. we're gonna miss, you know, points." Yeah, and uh, so it talks about that, and it, uh, you know, there, there's, and then it, you know, another, uh, the other one of the other chapters I I really thought was interesting is, you know, does does offense win championships or defense wins championships? And they did the analytics on that. And with the NFL the way it is today, I think the equation is more offense heavy. Now, this book, like I said, is 20 years old. It's probably been revised to a certain degree. But the numbers back then were saying as long your chances of winning a Super Bowl go up close to 60% if you either have a top five offense or a top five defense. But they go up even more if you got both. But there are the outliers that can sneak in there and win a championship outside of those numbers. But but it really shows if you're outside the top 10%, yeah. those numbers fall way below the chances of winning a championship. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because it was always the argument, like Michael Jordan, they talk about this. He always says, well, defense wins championships. Defense I mean, that was, that was kind had. of the, the lingo in the NFL for years. Yeah. But which, they, I mean, I think is somewhat true because if you – I mean, even nowadays, if you can't stop an offense, then, you know, you can keep scoring all you want. But if they're scoring more, you know, obviously you're going to lose. Yeah. You know, but nowadays you never see defensive battles like we used to. Right. You know, to where it's like, hell, we might win – Nine to six kind yeah. of game. Those games you rarely ever see that anymore. Yeah, and it gives an example in here on the like the Denver Nuggets in the early nineties. They averaged a hundred and twenty points a game, but they only won twenty games that year. Yeah, they were twenty and sixty-two. Well, that's because they're they're uh, they had opponents no opponents averaged one hundred and thirty. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, their opponents were averaging one hundred and thirty. Then, yeah. but yet they had the highest scoring offense. But they had the worst defense, yeah. so it, it they had to score. They, their defense was much worse than their offense, but that was their their whole scheme was to run it as fast as they could, shoot every seven seconds, yeah. you know, all this kind of stuff, kind of really what we're seeing now in the NBA, so to speak. Uh, but that was an uh, an interesting uh, deal. The other the other chapter it talks about is. The difference between a 300 hitter and a 299 hitter, which one's more valuable? Well, statistically, you would think a 300 hitter is, but the reality is a 299 hitter is because it's only a tenth, a one hundredth of a point difference in their average, but the dollar amount they get paid is significantly more for the 300 hitter versus a 299 hitter that people get paid for that performance. 
So two ninety nine is actually more valuable because you get the same production for, the for less. And yet it talks about how a two ninety nine hitter trying to get the three hundred is a lot more aggressive towards the end of of the season. Right. And where the three hundred hitter gets tends to be more conservative because he doesn't want to fall Almost below. Pad, the yeah, pad yeah. the stats. And that, that I think that's interesting. You know how you it's know it's kind of stupid, really. It is, but it's it's all the psychological. It's it's a psychological thing, and it talks about you know a thousand yard rusher versus a nine hundred ninety nine yard yeah, rusher. Yeah, you know, sure looks good on the stat sheet. Yeah, but the thousand yard rusher will get more money, but the nine hundred ninety nine yard rusher. If if you had one game to start, mm-hmm. you start the nine hundred ninety nine yard rusher, or somebody that has a chance to get to a thousand yards, you would be better off starting that player than the guy that's already had mm-hmm. the thousand yards. He's 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 hit that. He's mentally hit that plateau. Uh, and and I thought that was interesting. Uh, they talk about the Rooney Rule and how even in that book. Yeah, that's when the Rooney Rule was adopted. Yeah, this this book. And and the interesting thing is it talks about how when the Rooney, Rooney Rule was first adopted, you had uh, Tony Dungy and Marvin Harrison were some of the first two coaches under the Rooney Rule. And they both, you know, Marvin Harrison, I mean, uh, uh, didn't have such great success, but Tony Dungy winds up going up in the Super Bowl. Right. But the difference, what they argue is, it's not that being a black coach wasn't uh, necessarily giving them the opportunity. It was the fact people were willing to hire them because they felt like they were a quality coach to begin with. Right. They would have got hired even without the rule. Yeah, they would have gotten hired after the rule. So the, the, the Rooney rule skews that. But now that they've got the Rooney rule, we're starting to see that the black coaches – aren't any better than the white coaches, yeah. you know, from a standpoint. And there's another thing that I saw that was outside this book because I was researching some of it, that the the old – the way the NFL, when it started out with, with the Super Bowl era, most of your coaches at one time were ex-pro players. That's totally different now. You, you don't have a whole lot of pro player coaches anymore. Yeah. Most of your coaches It are, seems are, like these young, up-and-coming yeah, they're, guys. they're coaches. They're groomed to be a coach from Every, the get-go. Everybody wants to jump all over these you know new, up-and-coming, yeah. fresh-idea guys. And like you said, they've been getting groomed as coaches for yeah, they, years. They, they, they wanted to be coaches. They, they, most of them never Didn't even played. want to be players. Yeah, didn't yeah. play football. They, they were just coaches. Misunderstood so, it. Yeah, so you've got something like, I think, 25 coaches out of the 32. Yep. Uh, if I remember well, seeing One of them was in the Super Bowl. Yeah. Uh, well, both coaches this year in the Super Bowl. I mean, Andy Reid and uh, Sirianni. Neither one of them played pro football, you know. Uh, so, you know, it's going to show that I don't think it's so much because what's happening is – even with the Rooney Rule, and that comes back mm-hmm. to the Rooney Rule, that most of the black coaches in the league are ex-players that get into coaching. So, therefore, that's a that's a whole different learning curve from being a player yep. to having to be a coach. Yeah. You know, and uh, so it, it, the Rooney Rule is – I think it's kind of a misnomer what people understand it, it what what the effect was supposed to be. 
Right. And I, I, think, I think it's kind of a dumb rule, in all honesty. Yeah, because to me, I mean, it's hire like, whoever's best for the yeah, job. Who should, cares yeah. what what they look like? Right. You know, and I think really, even though that rule's there, I think that's still how people get hired. You're not getting hired because you're black or because you're white. You're getting hired because yeah. you're the most qualified for the job. Right. This isn't the White House. Right. You know. So, I, I mean, it, it's. It's kind of it's kind of becoming a debunked thing, you know that that this rule, and I think teams are starting to realize, you know, okay, we'll follow the rule, right? But, but we, we're not. But yeah. you know, Dungey and Marvin Harrison, to me, they got hired off of their reputation. Yeah, way to me, before really, they were hired. the rule is more is more insulting than anything because they're having to bring in these black coaches. Just to interview them, knowing damn well they're not giving them the job, right? You know, and they're doing it just so they don't get in trouble. It's yeah. like I would much rather, if I'm getting interviewed for something, I'd much rather get interviewed because they think I'm a fit rather than oh well, we're just trying not to get in trouble. Let's waste your time, right? You know, I would to me, I wouldn't even want the rule, right? You know, yeah, I would know. I would want to know that I got there based because, on the merits. Yeah, of what because I'm of how good I am or how good of an impression I made. Right. Much rather than oh well, this guy's skin color qualifies him. Bring him in. Yeah. You know. And, you know, like D'Amico Ryan's gets hired as the Houston Texans head coach. Well, he, he whether has he's a great head coach or not, he's in a no-win situation. Had to go to Houston. Team sucks. Yeah, the organization sucks. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter. To me, I'm not going to judge him so much on that. No. Now, if he turns that organization around, well, then yeah, then yeah, he's then got if it. I were him, go to another team because that team is nonstop. Yeah, in the bottom pips of the NFL. Right. You know. So, and, I thought I thought it was kind of interesting how you know it. it, it we've watched that rule play out. Uh, it talks about home field advantage in here. Another chapter here that talks. You think about, that's real? Well, the statistics say it is, but they the reason behind it is that the pressure, the refs feel pressured not to call certain plays. Because of the fans? Because of the fans and because they get kind of caught up in the moment, too. And So they start getting behind the and team. teams tend to be a little more aggressive on their home field versus on the road. They tend to be more conservative. So those kind Showing of Showing out for fans, pretty much. Huh? Showing out for fans. Yeah, you know they feel like they got the fans behind them. It's 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 worth making this call or doing this play or whatever yeah. the case may be. But you and know, possibly catch the visiting about, team being a little nervous on the road and right all of that. But also it talks about the star treatment at home. They tend to get better calls at home than they do on the road. Uh, you know those kind of things. Uh, the one that I liked uh, another chapter was called "There's No I in Team." And it talks about how Michael Jordan, you know, he basically he said – He spelt team different? No, well, he yeah, he says there's no I in team, but there's an M and an E in team. <laughs> so, and, uh, and it's like he said, you know, what would you rather have? No championships or six championships? Mm-hmm. You got six championships with me. Yeah. And so, it's, and the whole point of the deal was superstars win the championships. Yeah, I mean, I think they've proved that even now in in the NBA. I mean, all they're doing is building these super teams with nothing but superstars on there. Right. I mean, really, to me, that's why the NBA is just unbearable. You can't even watch it. Because it's one team built, one to maybe two, built up with all these superstar players. 
and they're just dominating everybody. Yeah. You know, and it's like, hell, everybody on the team can shoot three uh, three shooters. Everybody can do all that stuff. Yeah. You know, and they, I think, what would you say, Golden State was probably the first to kind of ruin everybody. Well, or maybe they, the Heat. They, heat, whenever they were playing against the Mavs and stuff like that in well, the finals. Well, they definitely uh, put, out, put the super team together with uh, Bosch and uh, – Bosch, LeBron, and, and – uh, Dwayne Wade. Who? Dwayne Wade. I don't think he was ever any good. Oh, okay. Anyways, <laughs> but, yeah, so – and it, but it talks about, you know, the more superstars you can collect, the chances are you're going to win. That you're going to do good. You're yeah. going to do good. So and you, the only and sport back, in yeah. the league that's like that is basketball. The NFL, you've seen these super teams amount to nothing. Yeah. And the Again. only sport I know that is like that is basketball. Well, and I've always been – it's like the quarterback-receiver chemistry. It's like, you know, people, they come out with these rankings of who the best quarterback is. Well, that is all predicated on who he's throwing it to. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw Aaron Rodgers last year. Yeah, he sucked for the most he, part. Yeah, he sucked most of the season. Why was that? He had nobody to throw to, yeah. and even when he got it to him, yeah. they dropped it. Right. And so – It was almost like when it hit them in the hands, they were like, oh, shit, I got it. Yeah. And then there it goes. It's gone. So it does goes to show that Aaron Rodgers is only good as a supporting cast around him. And I've seen that time and time again with, you know, I, I don't know of a great quarterback that played with lousy receivers. I don't right. know of one. But I do know that. I mean, I know some, of one that played with mediocre receivers. Right, mediocre. I mean, but, Tom Brady's right. probably and yet the when, best at doing that. Yeah, but yet when he got the best receivers, look what, what they he do. Did. Damn near went undefeated. Yeah, look what he did. So, and then broke all the records for quarterback and wide receiver. Right. Well, and, and I remember talking to a, uh, a buddy about Joe Montana. Yeah. And he says, "Well, but Joe Montana always had Jerry Rice." And I said, no, Joe Montana didn't always have Jerry yeah. Rice. He won two Super Bowls without Jerry Rice. He had two slow re- wide receivers yeah. the first two Super Bowls. Just made them unstoppable once they, they were, got yeah, it. Yeah, they had a scheme that nobody at the time right. really had an answer for. You know, and, and a couple of things happened in the league with the strikes and stuff like that, but still. But they understood that. They put the template out there. They found the players to fit the scheme, and then they figured out once the scheme worked, then they went and said, okay, what if we got this type of receiver to play in the scheme? Right. And that's when they drafted Jerry They Rice. started looking for what receiver is going to fit in this yeah. a whole lot better. Yeah. yeah, and so and then it just it got better. It just so happens. I'm not saying Jerry yeah. Rice was obviously the better combination, but Joe Montana was still able to win two Super Bowls without Jerry Rice. You know, Jerry Rice yeah. never won a Super Bowl without Joe Montana. So know, wide receivers are only as good as their right. quarterbacks for the most part. Right. So, you know, it talks about that. Now, I think so in another chapter here, it talks about it's called off the chart. And off the chart was when uh Dallas Cowboys back in the nineties under Jimmy Johnson, and when they were uh trying to scout or or when they came to the draft, I'm sorry. Yeah. When they came to the draft Jimmy Johnson wanted to know if I needed to trade a pick or what that pick value was. There had to be a system they had to come up with. 
So if nobody on the board's worth it, trade it. Well, what's that pick worth if it's willing to trade? Like the number one pick is worth like 3,000 points. Okay. On the, on and the a chart. point system. And so it would take a fifth and a sixth pick to equate because you drop down so many points to the okay. second pick, the third pick, and so on. Well, Dallas created this chart back in the early 90s to be, rebuild the Cowboys. And they came up with this knowing that if we trade down, what should we get knowing what this pick's worth? And if we pick up more picks, how many, how many more picks can we have? Yeah. And so that's how they were There's able to accumulate. three players better than one. Yeah. How, how we could accumulate more picks. And that's how they were able to get more picks or vice versa, knowing, say, no, it's not worth this to do it that way. And so that's how they figured out. And so for many years until – Dave Wanstead and Norv Turner got uh, hired to be head coaches other other places and other assistants. That secret was kept in Dallas for four or five years. And those guys got hired, and then they started adopting it. Now the whole league adopts it and uses this same chart to figure out what's the number one pick worth versus the 31st pick. What's he worth, you know? Yeah. And just the pick slot, not the player. Yeah, because, I mean, so – which we'll talk about this another day, but uh, like even with the draft coming up, there's a couple players out there that I think would do good for a couple teams, and they're only they're rated for a first round pick. Now, when you hear first round pick, what do you think, man? That's top priority right there. Yeah. But if you're the thirtieth or thirty first or thirty second pick, that's damn near a second round pick. Well, so it's not worth as much as somebody up at ten or somebody well, at nine. You, you would think you know? that, and and that's where they kind of. But when do, you hear first round pick, yeah, what do you think? You think top top right, notch, right. the highest and thing. Statistically speaking, your better players, it goes in order. The most of the players that are going to be top players are going to come out of the first round. Yeah. The second best, second round, third. There, there's no, there's only a few position anomalies where that happens. Right. Like. Say in like a fourth round defensive tackle has almost just as good a, good as a percentage as a first round defensive tackle, but the second and third rounds fall below the fourth round chances of hitting. So you're better yet if you can't get, get one, one in the first, first you're just go off play. in the fourth because there's so much uh, attributes that are different. But by the time the fourth comes around, they tend to start getting conservative with that pick, and yeah. they tend to find better, just as good at players. Not as many, but the other anomaly is that the top 10 picks usually have a higher bust factor than the other 11 through 32 picks because teams are taking such a gamble, such a risk. And expectation-wise. Yeah, and expectation-wise. So, really, you're better off picking outside of the top 10 if you're really – that's why you see the better teams tend to always pick at the second half of the first rounds or the second half of the rounds because the teams that are trying to build are starting to gamble more and they're willing to take a risk to try to get back to a winning season. So they tend to pick these quarterbacks that become bust more often. The receivers. So the receivers and quarterbacks have the highest bust rate in the first round. Yeah, uh, I can see that. Where offensive linemen – linebackers and uh, defensive linemen 
have more of a success rate, you're going to have the chances of being in tight ends, have a higher success rate. But what changes is the running backs. A stud running back, a Hall of Fame caliber running back. Almost, first round only. Almost 90% of them come out of the first round. All the rest, if you go running back by or committee. Even. You're pretty much even across the board from yeah. second on down so to you, seven. So if you don't want to take a top round running back, right? Then just wait till the fourth or fifth and get him. Yeah, there's there's no deviation. I mean, the percentages fall off each round, mm-hmm. but it's not enough to say, well, it's worth the risk or the gamble. Yeah. And really, the one round that you truly have the hardest to find an actual starter is the seventh round. You're better off just picking somebody and then trying to hope to God who you want to be a free agent and get them as a free agent after the draft, those guys still. So really it's like the first, second, and then free agents have the next biggest pool of players that actually become starters. And it's kind of strange. But I saw this scenario to where they looked at like New England – several years ago when they were being very competitive winning championships and they had such a habit of trading back in the first round. Yeah, I mean, it, me and you would call it every yeah. year. We're like, guaranteed they don't pick at that pick. Right. They're moving. And so what they were doing was Hell, collecting Most time they weren't picks. even getting first-round picks. Yeah. They were moving completely Well, they would, they would move back just to collect two or three more yeah. picks. In or the they'd draft. pick last or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and, and they did that for several years out of like a 10-year span. They did it like eight years. Yeah. And even though they they missed on the percentages. They had but so the, many but they picks. they had so many picks. They had more You're going to hit on one yeah, of them. you're going to hit on more. And why teams don't still adopt that, I don't know. But it does talk about – I think it's more of the fear factor. Round. You're you're yeah. scared you're going to miss out on a generational player. Yeah. You know, you're, you're worried that's – you're worried you're going to miss out on a Patrick Mahomes. You're right. worried you're going to miss out on a, you know – uh, you know, CeeDee Lamb type player, uh, uh, what's his name from the Vikings? Jefferson. Jefferson. You're going to miss out on one of these kind of guys, and you're going to, or Kelsey, one of those right. kind of players, you're going to miss out on them. And right. then you're going to be kicking yourself because, oh, well, I went and got a bunch of backups. Yeah. You know, that's got to be the mindset when it comes to that because if not, I'd be trading back every year. Well, like I said, I think. There, there seems to be a philosophy, like I said, the Patriots did this for many years, that the teams that get back the fastest is the, are usually the teams that get the most picks, the opportunities. They may not hit more, right. but because they got more numbers, they tend to find more players faster. And like I said, I don't know why teams just don't adopt that regularly. Because, like, you know, your chances of finding just in the first round, your chances of finding a five-year starter in the yep. first round is below fifty percent. Yeah, and each round it the drops major- off. The majority of players in the first round are bust. Yeah, and because they have such a high expectation yeah. window, like we just said, but it drops off significantly each round as yeah. it just kind of descends to where obviously your seventh round you're going to have less starters. Yeah, versus your sixth round, but really the first. Five rounds are your ideal rounds where you have somewhat of a chance, like 20% in the fifth round, that they're going to be a starter. I'm I'm waiting for the one team. The one team that trades all their picks away 
and they draft every player in the fifth round. <laughs> I mean, they're one through thirty-two. They yeah. get them all. Yeah, you know, watch that. Well, watch yeah, that team so go to a Super Bowl. Team, would the team be more aggressive to say, "Okay, I'm kind of curious. We're, we're peeling out of the first yeah. round. We're going to trade everything." Play. So, and that that's also goes back to off the chart because the money you pay to these first rounders, yeah. versus a second round. Because I mean, is, what's a fifth rounder? He's like yeah. five hundred grand. Yeah, probably less. Than if that. that. But that that's and you get him for four years, three to four you get years. Him four years, if you want to sign him to a certain. Imagine contract. if you sign fifteen of them. Yeah, you're bound to hit on somebody. Yeah, but it, that's that's kind of what you know. So like, there's certain positions that you can find quality players like cornerbacks and DBs. Yeah, you can find them in any round. You know, running backs, you can find them in any round. They just not may not be Hall of Famers. Yeah. So it's those contributors. Linebackers are kind of. Uh, the do same you want way. to focus your team around this player? Yeah. Pick him in the first. If not. Pick him later. Yeah, so it, I'm, I'm waiting for a team to actually say, you know what, we're not going to pick first rounders. We're going to trade them off and get seven or eight more picks somehow yeah. out of this. We're picking everybody in the fifth. Yeah, or well, well, second, third, whatever, because now you're not taking so much of a hit. <laughs> I'm, about, I'm, about to start, I'm about to start a Madden franchise, yeah, and every year I'm trading to get all fifth-round picks yeah. and do nothing but pick in the fifth yeah. the entire time. Right. So I think I think that's very interesting. Uh you know, I found that to I, that that chapter had me really researching and studying because I'm fascinated with how drafts are done, and a lot of that is is a reaction to trends. I mean, and one thing you notice is these draft experts and things like that—they don't know what they're looking for. I mean, hell, they're well, sitting the here scouting change. these people, and they're like, "Oh, yeah, this guy's going to be—he's the next Joe Montana. He's the next Tom Brady." And it's like you didn't know Tom Brady was Tom Brady. No, they didn't know Joe Montana was Joe Montana. That's what I'm saying. Like you didn't know that the best, the best NFL player in history was going to be him because he was in the sixth round. Yeah. And his stats, you said, not very athletic and built like a uh, bag of milk. Yeah, you know. But you know, like I said, and it talks about the Mitchell report where the Dominican players in steroid use and stuff like that. Oh, you know? just let them have it. Um, and then. Uh, I kind of want my football team juiced up. <laughs> and then uh, the the other one was talking about, is there really such thing as a hot hand? And I think, you know, and it kind of talks about that, that it's more I of mean, a to me, I think, and I mean, if you can get your players believing in it, yeah, I yeah, think yeah, that goes a long it, yeah, way. Yeah. Sometimes and it's a psychological thing. For example, is the Cowboys in 2016. Man, once Zeke and Dak started just rolling, right. man, they got that confidence. team going. Their and confidence went way up. Look at the first game. You could see the defense was just kind of like, oh, hell, well, we're going to we're gonna suck. Well, and then all of a yeah. sudden, they're sitting there putting well, – they lost that first game, but they still put up almost 30 points. And I think that team was like, dang, I think we got something because Giants were good that year. Yeah. And uh, we lost to them, but yeah. we put a game up. Yeah. And then after that, they went undefeated for a long time, up until they finally lost. But, you know, I think they finally got that team believing, and they were like, okay, well, here we go. Let's go. Well, it's it's kind of like, you know, last year when Cooper Rush had to come in and he had a 5-1 and one record. He sucks. And everybody thought, well, he's better than Dak Prescott. But what they yeah. don't understand, the team played better around him for that very reason. Well, they, they played they a to, certain way because yeah. they had to. Yeah, they had a play. When Dak's in there, they have some wiggle room. Right. Because they know he can bring you back. Right. Cooper ain't bringing you back. Yeah, they take more risk assessment. I mean, he was averaging 160 yards. 
Yeah. So were our running backs. Right. A quarterback should definitely be higher than the running back. Right. And so when when you see people sitting here talking about, oh, Cooper Rush should have been the starting quarterback, why'd you put Dak back in? Well, number one out, num- the number one offense is why we put him back in. Right. Four to five hundred yards a game is why we put him back in. Yeah. No, they like, almost doubled their. Yeah. Point it's like, average. oh, he throws an interception every now and again. So did Tony Romo. Yeah. It's well, like aggressive quarterbacks throw interceptions, and now they're trying to label this dude as like a a turnover uh, labeled quarterback. Right. It's like for the majority of his career, he didn't turn the ball over. Right, and there's also a statistical uh, anomaly with that. So when you look at his stats, he had 14 interceptions, I believe, and six were his fault. Right. Well, yeah. in, the, in the he only threw three or two, three or two with C.D. Lamb on the other side that that were missed, but all the rest came from either Noah He's Brown, low level, or, or uh, Michael Gallup. Would all bounced off their hands, you know, either. Bounce off their hands, running the wrong route from that standpoint, or mm-hmm. not being where they were supposed to be. Yep. And there again, I think that there that well, goes there's back a reason to we let go of Noah Brown. Just like you saw Aaron Rodgers throw more interceptions yep. this year. He's throwing the Well, it doesn't matter when it's to. Aaron Rodgers. It only matters when you're the quarterback of the Cowboys. Well, I, I'm and just, that I, yeah. comes with the territory, I think. Right. Well, it, it, it there there's those are the things that I think people. Should look more into, but they don't. No, because uh, our they, fans they just are wanna, idiots. They just want to say, well, if they lost, it's the quarterback's fault. If they won, it's, uh, it's Cow- the quarterback's Cowboys fans have always been this way. Ever, ever since I've ever watched them, that's how they are. Yeah. Like, oh, Tony Romo sucks. Oh, Troy Aitman sucks. Oh, Quincy Carter sucks. Well, Quincy Carter did suck. But everybody else. Watch it now. <laughs> but Cowboys fans are just. Man, I'm telling you, we have the worst fans on the planet. All they do is complain, bitch, moan, and cry. And it's like your team is in contendership every year. It's like, and then you want to boot Dak out. Do you remember Testaverde? Because I do. <laughs> and I hated that dude. Ch- Testaverde and Troy Hambrick. You remember those years? Because I do. Yeah, well, that Quincy Carter. You sitting there watching, you're like, God damn, this dude's ran 30 times and has 40 yards. Yeah. And they keep running. Yeah. Well, anyways, uh, the book's called Scorecasting. Uh, It's worth reading if you like analytics, if you like to look at certain situations. Uh, You know, it's a pretty short book. You know, I knocked it out in, you know, a week's time, reading it 30, 40, or chapter at a time, whatever. You can knock it out pretty quick, but it'll open your eyes to some stuff that you're just not aware of when you're watching a game of any sport. It's not, it doesn't favor football. It favors all the sports, or it breaks down all the sports as far as that. Uh, but it's an interesting book, and uh, you can find it probably inexpensive at any book, uh, thrift store, or whatever the case may be. What's your next book? Uh, the next book I'm currently reading is actually a book on tight ends. How you know a newer one? Yeah, it actually came out this year that I happened to come. About how about. they're slowly how, becoming how the, the, tight the number change. one receiver. Yeah, yeah, they're they're changing the game. So I, I've started yep. that one, and we'll have a review on that one coming up. Give him uh, two days; he's got it. Yeah. So, anyways, so that's going to do it for this uh, episode. Uh, Stay tuned for our next episode when it comes out, and we'll talk to you then.